Welcome back everyone to another episode of The Few. Uh, firstly, allow me to apologize for my raspy voice. It was only uh, two days ago, I was in an operating theater, having my heart played with and electric shocks melting my pulmonary vein to try and get my heart rate back to normal, thanks to COVID throwing a little uh, arrhythmia in there. Second thing, I do apologize for the studio looking like a broken down warehouse as I'm relocating very, very soon to the US. The box packing has begun and we're squeezing these last few podcasts in before jumping uh, on a flight. Now, a little bit like my experience with being thrown a curveball by COVID and getting a little bit uh, sick and otherwise healthy heart, not working so great. Our guest today is going to give us some really amazing insights into influence, how to manage things that are maybe outside of our, our control and our ability to influence those. And I reckon that if there was anyone on earth that would have the pedigree and the experience to be able to share stories on how to influence people in some of the most complex and uh, I would say potentially dangerous circumstances, it's our guest today. He's recently written a book, uh, just been published. He's been on the airwaves all through the UK, all over the world, order out of chaos. He is hostage negotiator, super coach, executive trainer, an all-round legend. Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without gold are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Scott, thank you so much for joining us here on The Few. It's awesome to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Scott, everything's a negotiation. Is that really a pretty simple philosophy to live in life? I personally think that's a great way to approach life and their true word could be said. Give us some insight in how you view the world through that lens. Yeah, what a, what a great start. Yeah, life is a negotiation. And when you think about it, what, what is a negotiation? It's when we're communicating with another person, looking to not only influence and persuade, but ultimately bringing about some form of cooperation and crucially collaboration. And if you think about it, all day long, we're, we're doing that, whether it's with our kids, family, neighbors, colleagues, let alone across a board table in some business negotiation, or even with kidnappers. It seems to me we're losing the art of the negotiation, though. If you have a look at uh, the state of politics, uh, we look at the extreme fringe and our abilities to not really come towards the centre anymore, but to start to move away. What's going on? Like, what is it about you that understands implicitly that negotiation and exerting influence is so powerful? And what's the rest of the world missing here, including some of the most powerful human beings on Earth? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? I think <laughs> too many of us are shouting and not enough listening is taking place. We all think that we're right and the other person is wrong. And then we spend whatever interaction we have with them trying to prove that. Whereas actually there's a couple of fundamentals here that serve me well in, in all my negotiations when the stakes really couldn't get any higher. The first one is around that emotional self-regulation. If we're shouting, if we're losing our cool, our control, then we're not really going to 
be able to influence and persuade the other person. And actually, then it's about, well, I need to demonstrate, at least I'm making the effort to understand where the other person is coming from, particularly if I don't agree with them. And that's even more powerful if we can do that and allow the other person to feel hurt. Somewhere along the way, you went to school, probably worked pretty hard at school, maybe not, I don't know, but somewhere in there, something happened and you would have had your very first live negotiation with what was ostensibly a potentially bad person or a person having a very bad day. What happened up until that point? And just to fill in the gaps, everyone, Scott spent over 16 years in Scotland Yard in this career stream before assisting the UN and traveling around the world dealing with many hostage situations. But like anything in life, the difference between high stakes, multi-million dollar hostage negotiation and day one, I have two questions for you. What led you to day one? And then what was day one like? Well, day one, you mean as a negotiator, how I got to that point? Yeah, your first, your very first real live negotiation. Yeah. Well, I've always been interested in what makes people tick, you know, the this, this human psyche. So I've always been drawn to roles that involve that, particularly within the police. And then towards the last few years of my service, I got given an opportunity to get involved in kidnap for ransom negotiations. And I remember the very first time I sat down there in this negotiation in this really cramped apartment in London and the family we were supporting, they just weren't listening to our advice in terms of what we need to say, how we need to say, it, how we're going to get their loved one back who'd been taken by a drug gang. And I remember losing my own call with the family and it took the reassuring tap on the shoulder or at least the hand on the shoulder of my more experienced colleague to show me how it was done. And it was a masterclass in how to manage your emotions. Because up until that point, even though I'd been interested in what makes people tick, I hadn't really um, mastered that art of first seeking to understand before being understood. You can go on all the training courses in the world, you can read all the books, but it's only through that real experience of being there in the heat of the battle, so to speak, where you're practicing it and refining it. And that was a real wake up call for me. That was like day one, really. And then through to where I'm now, 10, 12, 15 years later, kind of have the, lots of experience under my belt, made lots of mistakes, but thankfully a fan of what really does work now. So as a detective in Scotland Yard, I think a lot of people perceive that being in policing, you typically come across the worst of people or the worst of humanity. You're inevitably dealing with crime. You're dealing with people who just aren't the best versions of themselves. What did you learn about people and humanity as a, as a detective? And are you still able to have faith in human beings or do you find that, you know, now that we're more aware of PTSD, now that we have a greater understanding of the impact of policing on people, we don't put it in a box anymore. What were some of the things you felt or experienced throughout a fairly prolonged career there prior to getting into the K&R space? I've a huge belief, I mean, like unshakable belief in that human beings are wired for good, that there's more good in the world than bad, and that actually we're all doing the best we can based on our skills, our experience, our knowledge, etc. And yes, I did see the worst of humanity, like real, and, and any serving of former 
cop will know this, will attest to this, that there are some, some horrific things that go on that the general public just don't really see. But there's still a faith in humanity there because I've also seen the good side of people. And I think that just that exposure to I don't know, thousands of incidents really over the career is it, it just gives you a window into what makes us tick, which I go back to the point I made a few moments ago, how it's just a fascinating journey that we're on. And I actually get to a ringside seat now as to why we do what we do, particularly when life doesn't go according to our plans. You know, when we're hit by the, the overwhelm or the tsunami of adversity or however you want to describe it. And so, yeah. How do you maintain your own humanity? My personal experience with being in the military and then spending time in Afghanistan and being around a lot of very different circumstances and environments than in the first world that you gradually and insidiously just harden up more and more and more. And it's not till you start to see some of the impact on the softer parts of your life, you realize, hang on a minute, you obviously now help people and organizations and individuals build plans around mental health, helping themselves when it comes to mental health. What were some of your own rituals or your own journey with your own mental health being put in a position where millions, if not billions of human beings wouldn't go anywhere near experiencing the sort of things you experienced? Yeah, I think it comes down to the meaning you give things. Like you, you and I could experience exactly the same set of circumstances or situation. One of us, it will be the worst of days. That's it. It's game over. Whereas for the other one, it's oh, what a great opportunity. I can't wait to get stuck into this. And so we're thinking we're meaning making machines. And the meaning we give things dictates the emotions we feel and the quality of our life. And so over time, I've learned the hard way here. Over time, I've learned to reframe. I mean, the power lies in the reframe, right? Around how we can give things an empowering meaning, even if on the surface or externally, they look like huge obstacles and challenges and threats. And that's to me in good stead because it's meant I can see things as they are, but not worse than what they are, not to catastrophize them. And then to take ownership. It doesn't matter what line of work you're in, is the first step in a lot of this is once you've had awareness of something is to acknowledge it, accept it, and, um, and take some responsibility to then do something about it rather than going into that downward spiral of doom and gloom. And I think that's a real challenge for people in terms of if we don't experience some level of discomfort or we don't allow ourselves to stretch our comfort zone and policing the military, that's, it's just a constant push of the comfort zone. However, it's typically we're trained in it, we're introduced to those steps slowly, and over time we acclimatise to our environment. When these experiences come into the corporate world, there can be a bit of pushback, which is to say, look, you know, we're not going to have a K&R situation. We're not going to experience that sort of extreme circumstance like you, Scott. Why would what you experience be relevant to us here? I mean, we just sell toilet paper and toothpaste. Yeah. How do you see what you've experienced as having, because I certainly do, as having a profound effect on the mindset and the ways of working of people who just live their normal lives? Yes, yeah, a great question. And you use the magic word there, mindset. And the, the mind doesn't know whether or not it's dealing with a tense negotiations with kidnappers in the jungle somewhere or really tense workplace business deal or even a difficult conversation in a corporate environment. You know, it comes back to the point I made earlier about managing the emotions, first of all. It's about really understanding, okay, what are we dealing with here? 
looking or making the effort to look at this from the other person's perspective and then get, okay, well, what's our plan of action here? How are we going to communicate this? How can I make sure that the person wants to continue doing business with me rather than just trying to hardball something through? And people think that about negotiation or interrogation. I spent time in Iraq doing some interrogation work as well. And people think it's all about hardball and shouting and the big ego and the alpha male. And it's exactly the other end of the spectrum, the true success lies. And yes, you may get the odd win or the odd deal over the line by playing like that. But really, in this day and age, surely we want repeat business and referrals and people thinking, do you know what? Who's a great guy to do business with? We're going to continue doing that. Always great. You know, if there's a difficult conversation or challenging member of the team or a client, actually, who's a great guy to have on side? Because he's unflappable. We can trust him, which is key. And, you know, there's that likability factor, which we can often overlook. But, you know, one thing I really emphasize here is never underestimate the, the power of the likability factor as well. <laughs> yeah. I remember we were zipping around a couple one night and it was pitch black after curfew. We accidentally stayed out a little bit late. And as we're driving around, we came to a checkpoint and just beaming smiles. And my best friend and I who were over there with his business together. We said, I bet you no one ever got shot in the face while they were smiling. Uh, and that, that ability to just come across <laughs> as like happy and hey, yeah, we're just two guys in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, that, that disarming. I love what you talk about there in terms of likability. And so much of what we see on TV about business is being hardball, about being tricky. And I certainly found being in business, it's much easier to grow and be successful in business when everyone likes you and you like them and you trust each other. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing, and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. So with that in mind, based on the 300-odd negotiations you've had to date and what we see in business, what are some of the big mistakes people make when they're trying to negotiate a beneficial outcome for themselves? Yeah, they're, they're making it all about them, first of all. Well, actually, it's nothing to do about you. Yes, you'll get what you need. But first of all, as I mentioned before on this uh, podcast around, you've got to think about, okay, what is the other person looking for here? What are their needs and their wants? Okay. And by doing that, A, it helps build rapport. And B, it then gives you the opportunity almost or affords you the right, you've earned the right to then actually articulate what it is that, that you're wanting here. And it's particularly when people want to talk about money, you know, they want the pay rise or they want to save money. They want to get a discount. I always say to people, don't discount non-monetary gains here either, because it could be your boss might not actually be able to give you a pay rise. There may just not be the money to do that, but he could give you, or she could give you an extra two, three days annual leave a year, for example. So it's having that flexibility around what it is you're really looking for here. The second step or the second issue really is we'll put these barriers up because we may think we're superior to the person that we're negotiating with. And that can come across energetically, at least a bit dismissive, a bit judgmental, and that's not going to work. Sometimes we like to give advice rather than just listen. And there's a whole host of other things, both individually and corporately or organizationally that can get in the way, but they're like the main ones that, that really show up. Did you have a, 
mentor when you embarked on this or was there a, a negotiator or someone that yeah. that you observed and just thought that they were incredible in the way that they were with people and, and if who was that and what was it about the way they went about their business that really appealed to you and created that insight yeah i mentioned this in the book is that i know it's a cliche but i am genuinely standing on the shoulders of many giants you know i i didn't create any of this stuff, I've just had the privilege of experiencing it over 10 plus years and sharing it, my experiences. And so both in the police and when I left the police into the corporate sector to do the K&R negotiations extensively, there are a handful of individuals who the, the common themes amongst them were unflappable in a crisis, unbelievably unflappable. They just had that cool, calm, centered groundedness in the middle of the storm. They had unbelievable amounts of trust in themselves and in other people. And they would be able to stay really focused on point and communicating what they needed. You know, you think, well, actually, Scott, that can apply to many areas of life. And that's the point. It was just that the stakes were higher. We couldn't afford to get it wrong. But the transferable skills were just plain to see which is one of the reasons what actually prompted me to write the book in the first place is just the applicability of those fundamental core skills of those high performers, so to speak, in this tense world. Actually, you could use that in your family and in your business life as well. I think we should all get together and write a book and call it When There's a Consequence. (laughs) Because any business or anyone that works in an environment where there's real cars and stereos and a significant consequence from poor performance it's all the same habits. It's the same themes. It's being able to get from the animal brain up into the intelligent brain. It's the ability to focus on one thing and come back to that one thing, to keep calm, to just follow the process and stick to the process. Now, do all your negotiations end positively? Touch wood, I have done so far. Although there's one which, one of the early ones actually, which didn't. I mean, I wasn't directly involved in it, but it was a terrorist related. Um, kidnapping and actually we we kind of suspected all along that the the hostage was never going to come back it was more of a publicity thing for the terrorists but in terms of all the criminal kidnaps and the extortions yeah success all the time and actually there is a that's incredible there's a 93 percent success rate in a negotiation so if you're in a part of the world and you get taken you know you i'd pray not to have a hostage rescue or to try and escape, because there's a 93% chance you're gonna come out alive in good time through a negotiation because this stuff works. And the remaining 7% is when people, they get die in a, in a hostage rescue attempt, or they get injured and then die in the abduction or captivity or whilst trying to escape. Yeah, I remember when we were in London with Lloyds and getting all of our policies in place for working in the less fun parts of town, it was always that same scenario, don't be a hero, don't try and, and save the day. You're not the military. You don't have to try and escape every five minutes and just give you a serial number and your name. More often than not, you'll get paid out and come home. And people, I guess, underestimate, relatively speaking, how often this happens in terms of kidnap sort of scenarios. We see the odd piracy act or the cartels in Mexico. But it's not when you're in the world, it's not actually that uh, rare to have organizations have their employees kidnapped. Now, What are some of the tips and techniques that you use with families or a key part of being a negotiator? It's all well and good that you're the unflappable one and that you're in control of the situation, but the ability to 
help other people understand what's going on. And it goes back to how we started, I guess. You're not just influencing the kidnappers, you're influencing all the stakeholders because I'm assuming the families are not in a great frame of mind during this situation. So what are some tips and techniques you use to deal with people who, who are in their fight, flight or freeze response? They're not rational. Yeah, that's a really good point. We had a saying that if we lose the family, we lose the case. And what I mean by that is we had to get and keep the family on side with our negotiation strategy from the outset because we couldn't afford for them to go off by themselves, speak to the media, speak to the kidnappers separately because it just confused matters and it actually put the hostages in greater danger. So it was, again, bringing about some core fundamental communication skills. It was about some active listening. You know, it was about empathizing. It was about trying to allow them to bring their nervous system all balanced out as opposed to in that high anxiety states. It was listening to them more than talking. It was reassuring and validating what they're going through. And it was about encouraging them to focus on what we're doing. Hey, we're a professional team. We've done this before. This is your loved one, but this is actually a simple business transaction as far as the kidnappers are concerned. They will want paying out. And as long as we do that, not for the amount they're asking for, because that will just encourage them to hold out for more, but to a suitable amount of money, and then they'll be released. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it in the first place. So rest assured, there's a high success rate here. And in the meantime, we're going to keep you updated with the progress and it's about reassuring them that we're going to do everything that we can. And this process works, although there's no guarantees, it works uh, the vast majority of the time. But underpinning all of that, it's building that trust. Because we can't influence people until we know what already influences them. Which is why the first maybe few hours, the first day at least, I would just spend with a family. Just getting to know them, listening to them, finding out what their concerns were about this. And just building the empathy and the rapport. And so then you've earned the right, you've earned the trust to then seek a bit of cooperation from them. Does that make sense? It does make sense. <laughs> and it actually makes sense from a sales perspective, because the way you're talking is very much around what people don't do in sales, which is to walk in there and tell everyone how amazing their gear is and why they need to buy it and I'll give you a discount. It's all great. Rather than ask that simple question, which is, hey, how are you going? What does good look like for you? What How's your organization going? Understanding implicit. All oh, right. It doesn't sound like there's actually a chance to sell anything here. So I'm not going to sell anything. What's the point? Rather than get frustrated trying to force a situation that doesn't exist, just exists in your mind. But Scott, I've had the wonderful opportunity to speak to a lot of people and you demonstrate a very heightened level of not just self-awareness, but situational awareness, which is not what people are born with. It's not how most people are throughout their whole lives. So for you, when did you start to see yourself outside yourself? When did you start to feel that awareness come to you and that there's more than just, Scott, you are part of a cog in a bigger machine and the way the world works together, whilst it's complicated, there are certain patterns that if we stick to, kind of work. Yeah, my understanding of your question is, is when did I notice actually that there's a bigger picture here or there's more to it than just in the daily grind? Yeah, you sort of, you went from the day to day. Yeah, correct. That's right. Yeah. Well, I've always been a curious bugger, really. I mean, growing up, I was always asking why, and much to the annoyance of parents and grandparents and people. So I was um, always interested in, in what was going on out there, really. But I guess 
I think it was a gradual process. You know, there wasn't a one day I woke up thinking, all oh, right, I've got it now, or I've got it all figured out, or I've suddenly entered a portal with a new <laughs> view on the world. I think the cumulative process of 16 years as a detective and then seven years or so outside of that in the corporate world, probably 10 years now in the corporate world, it's just gradually, you know, case by case, experience by experience. And I've always been one who's been curious to experience things at the edge of my comfort zone. Not an adrenaline seeker at all, far from it. You know, going on a roller coaster ride is not my thing or parachute jumps. I just don't do that stuff. But I am curious as to, okay, how can I expand my threshold of control? So that could be signing up to go to Iraq, or it could be something because actually, do you know what? I'm going to go live in a different part of the country, or I'm going to take a different course, you know, learn a musical instrument, or I'm actually going to travel into a different part of the world, for example. You know, so it doesn't matter what it is. It's just constantly exposing yourself to new ways of thinking feeling and, and behaving and I think accumulatively over the years that's just built up to the extent now where I'll go anywhere and do anything at any time there's no or there's nothing that will phase me that could really show up so how do you find peace in all of that I mean that's a busy life that's keeping yourself well nourished uh, but what's how important is rest and recovery in your rituals yeah crucial and again I've had to work hard at that because, you know, a bit like yourself and, and other people who are doing well, so to speak, in life, slowing down and taking a day off or just resting can be anathemic. Anathemic, because like, well, I could be doing this, 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 and this, and this. Instead, it always got um, described to me as hammock time, you know, lying in a hammock. And how many times a day do any of us go, do you know what? I'm going to take maybe 10 minutes or 20 minutes to ha for some hammock time where you've got no screens, nothing. You're just chilling out on the couch or in the hammock, just resting, allowing the world to pass you by. And so I had to force myself to incorporate a few of those blocks throughout the day just to, again, balance it all out because you're right, it's 100 miles an hour otherwise. But even if I can't or even if I don't do that every day, I've learned to build in transition time. What I mean by that is bringing in the power of the pause. So after this podcast, for example, before rushing on to the million and other one things I've got to do today, I'll just take a few seconds or a minute just to kind of go, just to settle myself and go, right, okay, that was good, good, great experience, great conversation. And then I can transition with intention into my next thing to do. So I'm not just constantly bouncing around from one thing to the next. And again, they're like mini, mini superchargers, really. Even if it only lasts for 10 seconds or 30 seconds, but if I do that throughout the day, it means I can get to the evening and not be completely exhausted. And that's something I've just learned and developed over, over time, really. I think the really telling point there is the purposefulness that you bring to that rest. You, you don't just accept that there is rest that happens by accident because there's that whole resting mentality where if you're a busy person you might think you're resting but your brain's still going all over the place so it's that really super purposeful proactive take a deep breath move from one phase to the next phase a dr adam fraser is a doctor in australia talks about the third space about when from work to home or transitioning from one state of mind to another to invest in the third space and reset yourself before you go on to the next one because otherwise you just drag all the different spaces into each other and you just end up 
just a mess of everything everywhere all the time. Very hard to kind of be present in the moment in each one of those uh, transitions. So I was going to say, it's a real key point you made there around um, being present. And again, in a negotiation, for example, if I was off thinking about, I don't know, where I want to go on holiday or what I'm going to have for dinner in the middle of the negotiation, that's not going to turn out too well. And so bringing presence, your complete self to the moment, whatever it is you're doing, is key to any kind of successful negotiation or communication as a whole. And I think the world at the moment and the distractions that we see through all these digital devices, I guess if you're tuned into it, do you notice that people are less present? Do you notice when you're sitting with someone at a cafe or you're having one-on-one time that a lot of people are there in in person only, not in spirit and in mind? Yeah, absolutely. You can just tell we've developed over the last year, couple of years maybe, where our attention span is just shrinking at some extortionate rate. You know, trying to get my kids to sit down and read a book. Do you know what? I might need to call in some external help there. I mean, that's a negotiation. I'm not winning. <laughs> You're right. It, it, that's the 7% that don't quite make it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We're losing that, that sense of just being present. You know? So go back to when you're on the job, is there a time when you felt it slipping away where you felt in terms of a deliverable, which is getting someone home, was almost impossible? Have you ever had a negotiation that's gone that far? Have they all been pretty, you know, in the big scheme of things, banal? The majority of K&R cases actually follow a pretty steady pattern, okay? Is the other side kind of know what's yeah. going on? Are you dealing with people that do this all the yep. time and they kind of just, they've just got a bit of a system and they know how it works? Yeah, and I want to negotiate with people like that. I want to negotiate with professional kidnappers. Now, leave the morals and the ethics behind it that we're reinforcing what they're doing because if your loved one is taken you won't be having that mindset. You'd be like, Scott, get them back at all costs. And I want to be working with a professional group of kidnappers because they know that this is a business transaction. It's the erratic, highly emotional, dangerous kidnappers, the amateurs that I worry about. There's been a few, though, that have taken a little turn, gone off script, so to speak, where you're thinking, I've no idea how this is going to pan out. I really don't. And things don't go according to plan. And it could be, we call it the crisis within the crisis, where dealing with the kidnappers is easy, but dealing with our own side, dealing with the family or the client, the company, that can be the challenging part as well, where egos and internal politics and posturing and, you know, all, all this irrational behavior just comes to the forefront, which then manifests itself in the conversation with the kidnappers. You know, in one case, the communicator we were using because of a language barrier started threatening the kidnappers. I'm thinking, what are you doing? You know, we, we try and end the call quickly, <laughs> but the kidnappers got there before us and said, okay, we're going to kill him. And they hung up. And we didn't hear anything for six months. Now, you can imagine... That's hardcore negotiation right there. You can imagine the emotional roller coaster of the family and the company. <laughs> and myself was going on there thinking, right, what's just happened? But lo and behold, we managed to swap the communicators around. And after six months, the kidnappers got back in touch and we resumed the negotiations. And thankfully, that what worked out in the end. Well, on that that note, uh, mate, in terms of your life journey, getting to where you are today, published author, very successful career, living life on your own terms. Is there anything you would have gone back and told Scott at school, either to make the journey a little bit quicker, a little bit more painless? What would you say to yourself? We're social creatures, so surround yourself with good people. You don't have to be 
doing all of this by yourself. There are people who, if you get them on your team and you can work well with, actually you can go further. It's that cliche, isn't it? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go further, go together. And um, yeah, surround yourself with, with good people. It makes the journey a lot easier as well. And not only easier, but more enjoyable as well. Great advice. We just had a last podcast guest, very, very similar. The people around you uh, really are the people that make your journey, that where all the insight and all the surprises come from when you've got that cheer squad. Scott, thanks so much for coming on the show. Scott Walker, author of Order Out of Chaos, scottwalker.com. Please reach out to him. If you're looking to get the things you want out of life to accelerate that A to B, uh, listening to the podcast now and just reflecting on it, it seems that when it comes to a negotiation, it's the party that wants something seems to be the more difficult party to deal with rather than the party that's, that's giving. And given that we all want a great life or we all want a house and want money, want, what, what, I think there's a lot we can learn from you, Scott, in terms of how we temper our behavior and get those things in a way that's good for everyone. So thanks so much, Scott, for joining me on The Fuse today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And just to clarify, the email address is scottwalkerbooks.co.uk. People want to check that out as well. But it's been great to have been here chatting with you. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. I'll let you get into your transition space now before you embark upon, no doubt, the 20 other things you need to do today. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners, without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too. 